Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. And we've gathered to worship you, to hear from your word. And on this, the Transfiguration Sunday, may we listen to the words that you've spoken. May they reach into our lives and transform us. May we respond today to the words that you've given us to hear. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As I mentioned already several times, today is Transfiguration Sunday, which is also the last Sunday after the Epiphany. Now, if you're like me, whenever I remember reading the, the story of the Transfiguration for the first time, I remember distinctly, I was sometime in college, um, and I was reading one of the Gospels, and then I come to the story about the Transfiguration, and I read it, and I'm just like, what is this? What in the world? I had no idea what to think. It's just a strange story. Now, you might not even know what I'm talking about. You might be like, I don't, I don't know what you mean by the story of the transfiguration. And that's all right. It's not one of those stories we typically learn about. It's one of those odd stories we don't know how to handle, so it usually just kind of ends up towards the back of our minds. I mean, we all know the story about Jesus' birth. We all know the story about the wise men. We know the story about him feeding 5,000 we know the stories of the crucifixion and the resurrection, but the story of the transfiguration is not always one that we know. But what's nice about it always being a part of the church liturgy calendar is that it's an opportunity for us to every year remember what the transfiguration is about. So today, we get a look at Mark, uh, Mark's version of the transfiguration, his, his retelling of the story, and that's in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. So if you want to start to turn there, we'll be looking at that shortly, Mark chapter 9. But before we look at this, we need to talk about another concept, and that concept is the concept of glory, a word that we've been using throughout the season of Epiphany. Glory is one of those words that we're all familiar with, but that we have no idea what it usually means. It's one of those church words where like, yeah, everyone talks about glory, but what does it actually mean? It's foreign to us. But the idea of glory, we can't talk about it without talking about this word. This is the word kavod. It's a Hebrew word. And down here you can see this is what it, how it's spelled. The English transliteration is what that's called. The word kavod is just a normal Hebrew word. Its most basic meaning is heavy. Man, this box is kavod. That's what it means. But what does it mean when the biblical authors start to talk about and describe God as kavod? Do they actually mean that he's heavy? As in, just like this box is heavy, God is heavy. He weighs a lot. Is this what it means? Not quite. When they say that God is kavod, what they're saying is that when God interacts with things in the world, 
he is clearly kavod. Now, let's think about it this way. So in the ancient world, you wanted to buy some grain. You go down to the place where, you know, if the local person who had grain for you to buy, they would put the grain on a scale, and then you'd look, and you'd be like, man, that grain is kavod. It's going to take a lot of gold to balance the scale so I can buy that. Or, in the ancient world, you've got a lot of money in your money sack. Man, you're kavod. In the ancient world, your brother and his wife passed away last year, so now you've got their kids in your home too. It's so kavod. You've got eight mouths to feed now. When the Hebrew Bible uses the word kavod, what they're saying is that God demands attention. He shows up in the world, and when we notice him, we can't help but recognize that he is kavod. So it's not like God shows up and he says, hey, you need to look at me. What he does is he just shows up and you can't help but notice. Now, we get an example of this in the story from 2 Kings. Now, in the story, Elisha and Elijah are going around. And Elisha, we've heard, already heard several times that he's going to be um, witnessing his predecessor, Elijah, taken away. But this is what happens when that story actually happens. Verse 11, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of him, his garment, and tore it in two. So they're walking together, and out of nowhere, this tornado comes, and it escorts, and it's escorted by a chariot of fire. And it scoops up Elijah, and Elisha, all he can say is, Elijah, look, a flaming chariot. Now, we're not exactly sure what these mean, but we have some ancient Near Eastern parallels that help make sense of what's going on. And what we think is that Elijah, or the, that the whirlwind, um, is... God coming to take away Elijah and that the chariot is his escort. So when Elisha witnesses this, all he can say is, God is kavod. God rides with a flaming chariot when he comes to pick someone up because he is kavod. Now, there's a handful of stories like this in the Old Testament. There's the burning bush story. There's the cloud of smoke on Mount Sinai. There's the time Moses met with God and his face started to shine. There's Elijah's encounter on Mount Horeb. These are just a handful of times in the Old Testament where a human interaction with God and they experience his kavod. But then when we get to the New Testament, we meet Jesus. Now, when we meet Jesus at first, he seems like a pretty ordinary guy. I mean, he does some unusual things. He can heal people who are paralyzed from birth. He can heal 
people who have other sicknesses. He can raise people from the dead. But with all these things, it's explainable within the world of the Jewish people. They've seen people that can do things like this, maybe not quite as an extraordinary, maybe not so many people, but they can still see it. So see, Jesus seems pretty normal, and that's until the story we look at today, when I like to talk about this story, is the time where Jesus went full beauty and the beast. If you remember that movie at the end, and this is the story that happens with that. So Mark chapter 2, or 9, start with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There, was trans- there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. So up to this point, things have been pretty normal for Jesus, but then he takes his, a couple of disciples up to the mountain, and then the Bible talks about how he is transfigured. This is the word that is used, metamorpho. It's a Greek word. It simply means to be changed. It can be an outer change. Someone notices that your, your appearance has changed. Or it can be... An inner change, something inside of your character that changes that people can notice about you, but they can't actually see the change. But this is the word that's used, and for Jesus, it's clearly an outer change. He is transformed before his disciples. He becomes bright, and in, in er, in the way that Mark describes it is that his clothes become dazzling white. Now, but if we look at, at Matthew, Matthew says that his face shone like the sun, and Luke says his face changed in appearance. And then also Jesus appears with two people out of nowhere, Elijah and Moses. And they're talking with him. So it's a pretty extraordinary encounter. So this is how the disciples respond. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But then look, Mark adds this little note. He says, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. They had no idea what to do. So their only response is Peter says, okay, well, there's these new guys with us. Maybe I need to build shelters for them too. He didn't know what to think. But before any response could come from Jesus, this is what happens. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from that cloud said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So out of nowhere, this cloud comes and covers them. Now, we've heard part of these lines before. This is my son whom I love. It's the same thing said about Jesus at his baptism. But then they add to it this other line, listen to him. Now, let's look at this next verse before we put it all together. Suddenly, when they were looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So now we need to put this story together. To understand the transfiguration, we need to see the Old Testament echoes 
that are present here. Or another way of talking about it is if you're familiar with Wikipedia, um, if you're in a Wikipedia page, there'll be certain words that are blue underlined, and those are called hyperlinks. If you click on it, it takes you to a different Wikipedia article about that topic that the word is associated with. And what happens is that this is an endless line of ideas that you can encounter. And so for us to understand the story, we need to understand these hyperlinks. And there's a number of connections, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of connections between Mark and the Old Testament. The first one, and I know this is kind of small to fit it all together, but this first one, it says, Mark chapter 9, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and they led him up on a high mountain. And then now, Exodus 24, 16, this is the story, for six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So this association, after six days, now Jesus goes up into the mountain. After six days, then Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. The next one, Matthew, this is from Matthew since Mark doesn't use this exact language. His face shone like the sun. Now this is another encounter from Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And also, Old Testament echoes, Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah. These are both important Old Testament characters. We've already heard the end of Elijah's story from this morning. Moses has an interesting similar end where it's mysterious what happens to him at the end of his life. Mark 9, 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them. From, Matthew, or from Exodus 24, 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the, Lord, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And then finally, this word that says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. This is Moses giving his final speech to the Jewish people. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you. From your fellow Israelites. And he says this. He says, You must listen to him. So these are echoes, hyperlinks, and that hyperlink is not my idea. There's uh, something called the Bible Project. They have tons of YouTube videos. They have a podcast. A scholar named Tim Mackey is, I think, coined that term, and it's brilliant. Because what he does in all of his videos is he shows you how the Bible uses these ideas, all kinds of ideas throughout. But for us, these are hyperlinks we need to see, to see how Mark is connecting the transfiguration with this event, specifically around Moses but also associated with Elijah as well. And what this story is telling us is that Jesus reveals God's full glory. So while we got glimpses of God's kavod in the Old Testament, Moses, I mean, we get a glimpse of it whenever Moses goes on the mountain and there's a cloud. We get a glimpse of it when Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining. But Moses isn't the cause of it, or isn't the reason his face is shining. It's because of what he was with in God's presence. But Jesus reveals God's full glory. On the mountain, Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured. The veil was lifted. Because what happens with that story of Moses is he comes down and the Israelite people are terrified. They're like, your face is glowing. So then he has to veil his face because people are scared to see him. 
Because if you go on a mountain and your face glows, there must be something up there that's pretty terrifying. God has some kavod. But now, Jesus is, comes to earth veiled, but whenever he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, the veil gets removed and we see his full glory because Jesus revealed God's full glory. Now, this leads us to a question, well, if Jesus reveals God's full glory, then why in the world don't more people believe? Well, this is how the story ends. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Jesus tells Matthew, Mark, and, and Peter, Matthew, Peter, James, and John, he says, don't talk about this with the rest of the disciples until after I'm resurrected. Now, they had no idea what he was talking about. But even after the resurrection, the transfiguration is one representation of Jesus' glory. But the resurrection is an even greater example of his glory. And if people reject the resurrection, the transfiguration isn't going to change their minds. But it does lead us to a troubling question. If Jesus reveals God's full glory, and if God really is, if his glory is such that when people encounter it, they're terrified, their faces shine, they think they're going to die, all examples of what happens in the Old Testament, in the New Testament when people encounter God, well then how come more people don't believe right away? Now Paul offers an answer to this in 2 Corinthians, and this is the third text of the four for the last Sunday after the Epiphany. We don't always look at the, the, uh, this text, but this one is so important for us to understand what Transfiguration Sunday is about. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now right here, Paul is hyperlinking the transfiguration story. The gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus, is God, Jesus reveals God's full glory. And why is it that people don't see it? It's because of the God of this age. Or to talk in the terms of Revelation, the dragon, his beasts, and the reign of Babylon. People who live in Babylon aren't in the kingdom of God. They don't believe the gospel that Jesus is the king of Jerusalem or the king of Israel, the true king of the world. So they reject that or they don't believe it. They're de deceived by Babylon. So they don't see the glory of God. God and Jesus. Jesus reveals God's full glory, but the people who reject Jesus, who are sucked into the world of the dragon, into the reign of Babylon, they don't see because they're blinded. But there's hope. This is what Paul says then. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let the light shine out of darkness. For, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Two things here. 
First, it's not our responsibility to change people's hearts about Jesus. Only God shines light in the darkness. But, Paul says, look, for God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Now look, displayed, I have this razor pointer now, displayed in the face of Christ. A direct revelation or link to the transfiguration. That glory that was on Jesus' face that day, that same glory that was on the face of Moses many years before, it's the same glory that God shares with us and puts in our hearts. And then he says, all right, now you go into the world and you show people Jesus. Jesus reveals God's full glory. And then he shares that glory with us. So throughout trans- Throughout Epiphany, we've been talking about Jesus on display. Epiphany is about putting Jesus on a billboard for everyone to see. Who is Jesus? Well, this is who he is. Glory is an important word associated with that. But what we see is really we are the billboards. It's our responsibility to shine the glory of Jesus in the world. Jesus reveals God's full glory through us, his people. But before Jesus, when they got glimpses of his glory, but then Jesus comes and God's full glory is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus reveals God's full glory. But only the people who follow Jesus see it. The rest of the world who lives in Babylon is blinded by the dragon his beasts, in the rain that's brought through Babylon in his kingdom. But not only do we see the glory of Jesus, or the glory of God in Jesus, we actually have the glory of Jesus in us. Now Paul's very specific to say that it's not us. He says we do not preach ourselves. That's so important. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ in us that he talks about. But Jesus reveals God's full glory. So we have that opportunity to point to God's kavod, the greatness of God. When God enters our space, we can't help but notice that he is kavod. We're called to be followers of Jesus who live the way of Jesus and who make people who follow Jesus. That's why every Sunday I get up and say, we make followers of Jesus who live the way of Jesus. It's about living the way of Jesus. It's about shining the glory of God in the world. Everything we should do as a congregation should be about that. And if it's not about that, then it's not something that we should be doing. Jesus reveals God's full glory, and he's given us the responsibility to participate in that. Now, Lent starts on Wednesday. And Lent is the season when you reflect upon your need for salvation, on your need for someone to rescue you. It's a time when we reflect upon our brokenness. It's a time when we fast, when we pray, when we study scripture. And transfiguration sets the stage 
to say, who is the person we're journeying with to the cross? The person we're journeying with is Jesus, and Jesus reveals God's full glory because he is the Son of God. That's who we journey with. That's who we're called to follow. And that's the person whom will go to the cross on our behalf and then call us to follow him and be a part of his kingdom. Jesus reveals God's full glory. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. And as we look at the story of the transfiguration, as we consider this word that's so difficult for us to grasp, your glory, may we begin to see it as this idea that when you show up, people notice because you are so different and great majestic and holy and beautiful that we can't help but for one be scared and also be amazed and your son revealed that glory he brought it to human flesh and then he shared it with us may we respond to that invitation to follow him, to trust the gospel, to believe the kingdom of God has arrived, and to follow Jesus as our king, to live in the kingdom he has established. And may we share his glory in the world through the way we live, as we strive to live the way of Jesus and make followers of Jesus. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.